Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. Matt Resch, president and founder of issue management firm Resch Strategies, joins the team to discuss what they're putting on their 2024 State of the State bingo cards. What issue group is still waiting for a policy win from Michigan's Democratic leadership? What policy proposals are on life support this year? Macomb County Public Works Commissioner Candace Miller explains why she's leading local opposition to some Democrats' water affordability legislation. Also, she's asked about her favorites for Michigan's U.S. Senate race and the Republican presidential primary. Additionally, Detroit resident Kristen Furman details her life as a carless Michigander. Not having owned a car in a decade, Furman spent $18 monthly, on average, on transportation costs in 2023. Now, here's MERS podcast host Samantha Schreiber, editor Kyle Malin, and the boss John Ruhrink. Thank you so much, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast, where we are beginning things today of a warm-up conversation with Matt Rush, the president of the communications and issue management firm Rush Strategies. Before establishing Rush Strategies in 2009, Matt has served as a communications director in the State House from 2005 to, through 2007, and as a deputy communications director and former Governor John Angler's administration. Hey, Matt, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Sam. I appreciate uh, being on with you guys again. So for all of those who celebrate uh, this week in Michigan, it is State of the State Week. We are getting ready for the governor's uh, New Year remarks happening in the middle of this week on Wednesday evening. And the question that I kind of want to kick us off at, uh, what are the top three things they could be fun. They could be policy. They could be biggest hits. What top three things would you put on your state of the state bingo card for 2024? Uh, how about you, Matt? What 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 are oh, you putting on that bingo card? That's a tough question for me because the state of the state day is my least favorite day of the calendar year. Um, coming from someone who worked in the house. I never got to really enjoy the, the angler state of the States because I was such a lowly staffer at that point. I, I didn't get to go. I didn't get to see it. I just had to, you know, I read about it like everybody else. But when you work in the house for the, the number of years I did, hosting the state of the state is just a brutal day. It's no fun. You got to set, you got to, and I did it for the, the Grand Home Administration. So it was kind of a thankless job to go through all of the effort to set the whole thing up and then to do it for somebody else. Um, so with that bias aside, um, bingo cards, I, you know, I'm going to have to put um, abortion in that on that bingo card, not because it's a fun issue, but I'm sure it's going to be talked about. Um, I think uh, the governor is probably going to do a bit of a victory tour on some of the big things that she finished last fall. So I'm guessing there's going to be some energy uh, uh, bingo being screamed from the, the floor. And then I would not be surprised if we hear about some education, some some things that came out of the population. Um, what do you want? What do we want to call it? Her her commission to grow Michigan's population. Uh, some of the things from that will be, I think, on the card as well. How about you, Kyle? What do you have on your bingo card? Well, we've we've already gotten one leak from the state of the state address. This five thousand dollar caregiver tax credit proposal. Uh, so I guess, you know, that's that's kind of a layup now since she's already kind of laid it out. I think that she's got to mention paid leave in some way. Uh, 
that was in her what's next address and it was really the only one that didn't get uh any action and even though i don't think it's going to go in 2024 i think that it would be seem it would seem kind of strange if she didn't at least mention it uh, but other than that, I, you know, I don't see a lot of new proposals in this uh, state of the state address. She's not promoing it like uh, she has in prior addresses. We're not seeing a lot of leaks, but I, I think it's because there's not going to be a lot of proposals in it, not, not new proposals anyway. The focus seems really on, as far as the governor's attention, her focus seems to be on 2024 elections and helping Joe Biden win and promoting um, you know, expanded uh, abortion protections uh, because uh, that is a driver and a huge concern among Democratic voters. It was a big voting motivator in 2022, and she was a good standard bearer for that message. And I feel like she's going to do it again. I, Matt said abortion. I guess if I had to do a number three, I, it would be abortion because she is going to mention reproductive freedom several times, not necessarily because of just the policy, but because I think that that's the politics that uh, that she's driving right now. How about you, John? Do you have any bingo card predictions? I do. And I'm going to start with the fun side. She's, of course, going to call out the University of Michigan National Football Champions. She's going to call out the Lions. She has to do that. Uh, I think this is a governor, if she wants to have a national future, needs to strike a chord that's somewhere in the middle. She needs to say yes about all these uh, sort of programs and policies that were embraced and passed by the Democratic-controlled legislature. But she also needs to say to the rest of the country, I'm a centrist governor. I could actually play on the national stage. I think there's going to be something that to that. I don't know what it's going to be, but I think there's going to be something to that effect that's going to surprise us. Uh, so that would be that. I would also agree with uh, everybody about, you know, mentioning abortion. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she hits the uh, rings, the uh, saving democracy bell uh, in, in favor of, you know, Joe Biden's reelection efforts and her hope that Trump is defeated. Um, so that's kind of where I expect it to go. I'll, I'll be I'll try my hardest to be super quick with mine. Uh, I think something for the kids. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it's going to be something for the kids. Uh, rather, it be a education proposal, uh, maybe a family tax credit, maybe some workforce development opportunities for high schools, something good for the kids. Uh, I think someone's going to have bad luck in the media room. And I say that because I was one of those people. I was sitting in the House Appropriations Room, which is where they put the reporters at. And I ripped open my pants because there was a little, little sliver of wood underneath the House Appropriations desk I was sitting at. And it ripped over open my pants. And then I also got sick in that room. So someone's going to have bad luck in there, and hopefully it's not me. Um, And third, oh my goodness, this is where I get confused. I'll just echo what John said. Something for the Lions, something sporty, sporty and fun. Oh, actually, I was going to say, I think House Minority Leader Hall is going to put out a press release about why did the governor miss an opportunity to talk about shared power and the potential for bipartisan advancements. Well, that's like just having the, the center free in the bingo card to put that one out there, Sam. <laughs> but, you know, Matt, as someone who leads an issue firm, I mean, we saw a lot of proposals that 
did surpass and got successful in 2024, but we also saw things that were left behind for the new year. Uh, when you think about the top issues that the governor had at the start of 2023 or even during her What's Next address that now might be on life support, uh, what do you think those are? I think Kyle mentioned the the paid family leave. I think the I think the governor and maybe some members of the legislature were surprised with the uh, really strong pushback that I think they got from that that really never allowed it to get any legs. I think a lot of people on the governor's side of the political aisle like to point to the state of Minnesota as like why can't we be like Minnesota? You often hear people say oh, it's they're they're a cold state. They're like us. But everyone goes, all the businesses are there, the headquarters are there. Well, you know what? They did this paid family leave and it's been a disaster. And so I think that there might be some people who saw that and, and thought, you know, maybe we don't want to be like Minnesota. I think, you know, looking ahead, I think Kyle makes a good point. There's not going to be a ton of new stuff in this because if you look at the legislative landscape, there's really nothing that she can say that she can get done um, for most, most, most of this year. Um, to the extent the legislature in the House in particular is going to be in session uh, for the next couple of months, their attention is going to be focused on the budget, or at least it should be, um, getting done what they can get done on a committee basis before those special elections are held uh, later this spring and they get back to their full numbers. Um, and then as soon as that budget process gets over, the House is going to want to get out of town and they're going to want to go campaign. Um, we're going to have new seats in this, what, what these dozen or so House members. It's going to be chaos from an election standpoint. And the Speaker is not going to want to be fighting, um, you know, forget Matt Hall. He's he's figured out how to kind of get Matt Hall and, and relegate him to the sidelines. He's He doesn't want to be dealing with these fights within his caucus from the far left and then the middle of the road caucus members who have made his life a living hell uh, during the fall, trying to get done what the governor said she wanted to get done. And I think that was a big part of why things started to stall out. None of those factions within his caucus have gone away. Um, if anything, people's patients are going to get uh, less and less. Um, they're going to be less and less patient on the, the members on the left to, to kind of sit back and let, you know, the politics of the, the, the chamber work itself out. So I think that the governor is going to be uh, brief on the policy stuff because there's not a lot she can, there's not, there's nothing she can say that she will be able to get done for sure. I would say the drug affordability board also could be something that she mentions in, in what little that she wants to put out there, uh, because I think that it does have some type of general election appeal, kind of like a $5,000 caregiver tax credit proposal. I mean, who's going to be against something like that? I mean, even Republicans would, would struggle to be against that. And then you when you mention making drugs cheaper. Who wants to be against that? Who wants to be the one who says, well, you know what, let's have Big Pharma go ahead and charge what they want and have no oversight over it. Um, that's something that is very sellable, I think, to the general public. Whereas something like paid leave, I just don't think she she needs the aggravation of having the wrath of the business community descend on her this year. If she wants to do that next year, she can do that next year after the, the reelect of Biden. She, there's no downside doing it then. There is downside now. She doesn't need to motivate um, the uh, business community when she doesn't need to. Um, leave that aside and just let's do good poll tested issues that are going to get people ginned up and excited uh, to vote Democrat in 2024. Curious, uh, Kyle, you mentioned the reelect of Joe Biden. Uh, I would like to hear all of your reactions as to what the governor could do to actually help Joe Biden that she hasn't done. She hasn't done much. 
I mean, to the until this last weekend when she started to do some of that campaign stuff. But, you know, and, and I guess in her defense, I think with, you know, we're, we're talking here the day before the New Hampshire primary, I think from all for all intents and purposes, this becomes a general election race tomorrow night around eight o'clock when the polls close in New Hampshire and it becomes Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. And so, you know, game game on. And I think that's probably now time for her to to get in there and do it. I mean, if I were her and if I were um, people advising her, I would say, Joe, we've got Michigan taken care of. Why don't you find some other state to be in? Because you're probably you're you're not very popular here. Um, and I am speaking from as the governor, you know, people like me and I'm going to go out and I'm going to go and campaign for you. Um, and let's not have you come in here. And because I think it I think it puts there is a, a lot. And you look at national polling um, on both sides of the aisle. There's just a lot of uncertainty about about Joe, Joe Biden and his his capacity to to run a campaign and to be president for four more years. And I think having him in the state um, physically where people can see him and just kind of are reminded on a daily basis that, yep, I don't think he's really up to it, um, isn't going to help him. And I think you've got um, a very popular, a, a successful governor um, who can can carry a lot of this water for him. And I think that I think she's going to be um, working really hard because she wants to keep the house and she wants to uh, say that she helped him win. Yeah, this whole um, it would be good if Biden was more vocal on abortion thing that she said on Face the Nation. Uh, to me, that was a, a signal that she is trying to motivate Democrats and liberal voters to get on board and that now is the time um, to get on with Biden, even though he has not been vocal on the number one issue from 2022. Uh, Whitmer, like Matt said, is just going to go ahead and, and take care of that for him and get people wound up and get them excited about an issue that, while it's all but settled here in Michigan, is not settled nationwide. And if you can get especially progressive voters wound up about the prospects of a national abortion ban, you know, she's the she's the best spokesperson for that kind of message. And so she's going to she she's going to go ahead and, and, and do that. And she has. I wonder also about some of these various interest groups, interest groups that also play a role in elections. They knock on doors, they call phones, et cetera. Uh, what is an interest group that hasn't been served by Democratic leadership in 2023 that is still waiting for something to get them motivated this year? The urban vote. I think the black vote uh, is still waiting. You heard that in our last interview with Lamar Lemons. He he was saying exactly that. When is it our turn? Um, yeah, they've been feeling taken for granted of for years and years. And um, what they would really like is, I think, this water affordability board that Senator Chang is working on. I, I just don't know how well that plays with the electric because that can easily be framed as taking money from some and giving it to others, which we already do with our heating bills to an extent. I mean, we we have a program to keep the heat going for people who can't afford it. You know, you can make the argument, why should water be any different? But, you know, that's easy for, for us to say when we don't have to pay the $2 a month uh, here in Lansing because it's a Southeast Michigan problem. But you ask what constituency? It's the black vote. And I'm telling you that water affordability is is one of the big ones that they would uh, really like to have for themselves there. She could also go out and say the courts did a good thing forcing this redistricting because Detroit needs a voice. Matt, how much do you know about the water affordability package? Uh, I know what Kyle just said about it. Um, so 
So, I mean, ultimately, just to summarize that, and we do have Candace Miller coming on the podcast, too, to explain it from her perspective, because she is raising opposition against the package. Uh, but ultimately, it tries to create a statewide system that sponsors of this package hope can be a national first of its kind model for securing water affordability uh, and what it does it creates this uh, extra charge per month on water and sewer sewages to then go and to provide water bill assistance to severely low income residents uh, similar to what we have for utilities and electricity bills we have a similar statewide model uh, for support do you think water affordability, do you think that could be a winning issue for the governor, even just thinking about the term as it is? Well, I guess I guess I think to Kyle's point, I think that there might be some limited success or some limited uh, popularity with the communities that he that he mentions. I mean, there clearly are some some communities that have been that are that are struggling with those kinds of affordability issues, those core affordability issues that have been hit hard over recent years coming out of out of the the cost in inflations from the pandemic um, and the the fact that everything has just cost more the last number of years and, and the fact that water is something that's such a, a fundamental fundamental need, um, I think there is. I, I'm not sure that it's an across-the-board state issue, um, but I think, you know, for a state that's surrounded by it, we've had our problems with water um, when it comes to Flint, affordability, Benton Harbor. You know, th these are some real issues that, um, you know, and for the, the that people, I think, to Kyle's point, in these communities are, are looking to Lansing and wondering why more hasn't been done. Now, Matt, I do know that your firm is working with the Keep My Kids Tobacco Free Alliance, and they really want to see a state tobacco and nicotine regulation tax, specifically when it comes to e-cigarettes and electronic smoking devices. What type of role do you think that could play this year? Well, you know, that's an issue that I think uh, folks on on the, the side of the kids and and, and keeping this uh, tobacco away from from kids felt very positive early on in the in the Whitmer administration. If you recall, I think she she went on the Today Show um, uh, and made a big announcement about Michigan and and uh, e-cigarettes. And I think people felt very positively about the direction uh, that was going. I think you know as the legislative wheels grind to a halt, some of these things um, and it's been a frustration. Um, I think it's going to be an issue that. I was talking with some some young people who were hanging out with my my son the other day, and it was the idea of cigarettes is just not even something that even enters their mind. But every single one of them talked about e-cigarettes um, and vaping, um, and so it is it's clearly something that is becoming a bigger bigger issue for, uh, for teens. It's a real concern, um, and I think that to the extent the legislature wants to take that up or can take that up in these coming months, I think that would be good. Matt, I know that uh, you've been involved in Republican politics before in, in kind of prior roles with uh, Bill Schuette or, or Dick Postumus. And so I, I'm curious what you make out of the, the current split situation with the party where you have Christina Caramo refusing to acknowledge the actions by the state committee from January 6th that removed her from office. Uh, instead, she had a meeting the week after that confirmed her as state party chair whereas the insurgents went ahead and picked Pete Hoekstra this past Sunday and said he is our new state party chair. Who do you think is the new state party chair or who is the state party chair? Well, we were talking right before we hit record. I, I'm as confused as maybe anybody else. I, um, you read the coverage coming out of these last three weekends and it's it's hard to know. I think that at the end of the day, there's one person who's probably going to pick the party chair in Michigan, and that's going to be Donald Trump. 
Um, I think he will, he will be the one who says, Christina, you're my person or Pete, you're my guy. Um, and if not, then I think, and I think he's probably in his best interest at some point, he's going to need Michigan to function, uh, to, to get his voters out. He needs a state party to do that. Um, he's going to want, um, the house, he's going to want all of these things. And so I think he's going to, he's going to need a functional party. Um, and I think ultimately it'll be the RNC and, and, um, and Donald Trump who are going to pick who that person is, because, um, I, I don't have a whole lot of hope that even though there are lawsuits involved now that some judge is going to is one going to want to get weighed into this mess. And, and even if a judge just does decide that at least half of the people in this argument are going to pay any attention to what that judge says. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. It, it would seem to me that Donald Trump and the RNC are, are and maybe not explicitly just say this is the Republican Party, but rely on let's say, a Pete Hookstra operation to help him raise money. Look, Donald Trump does not care about bylaws or rules of the Michigan Republican Party, doesn't care who fouled what and who violated what. The only thing he cares about is raising money and making sure that Michigan goes for him in 2024. That's all he cares about. And so he's going to go with the operation that is going to help him raise money and help get together, support, and drive out the vote. And Pete Hoekstra, his former ambassador to the Netherlands, has the capability of being able to raise money. Christina Caramo has shown that she has the ability to not get out of debt. Um, and so to that extent, he's he's going to go with the person who's going to raise him the money. And if you remember back in, uh, God, it was last year sometime when he was at Oakland County for that fundraiser, you know, you know how Trump gets when he's slighting people. He'll mispronounce their name or make a make a funny, you know, a phrase out of them. He called her Christina Carano not once but twice. And it seemed to me in listening to it that he purposely called her Christina Carano, which was the phrase that people who were trying to get her not to be the party chair when she was running against Joe, I'm sorry, Matt DiPerno, they called her Carano just like Trump did. Trump is not a fan. I think he's going to end up relying on Hookstra, whether it's a formal announcement or whether he's just going to use him and just kind of be here on the side one way or the other. That's just how I see this going down. You all really feel that, that he would rather choose Pete Hookstra as opposed to the kind of more diehard loyalty that Christina Caramo could bring to the table? Yes, because, I mean, Christina Caramo has been neutral. I mean, she's she's said all along that she's been neutral on the whole state party or on the presidential primary thing. You don't really hear her talking about Donald Trump much at all. Um, and also remember back when she was running for state party chair, Donald Trump weighed in and wanted Matt DiPerno. He didn't want Christina Caramo. He wanted DiPerno. And he didn't get what he wanted there. And so I don't think there's any loyalty for Karamo or Trump to each other, really, in any way. Uh, the fact that Pete Hoekstra even wants this job is kind of a gift to the former president. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, loyalty only runs one direction with with Donald Trump. So I don't know that it's that that's a thing. And it's ironic with as much chaos as he tends to create wherever he goes and whatever he does. He also, I think, at some point is going to look at Michigan and and wonder, why do these people keep making fools of me? Um, and because he doesn't like to look stupid, um, even though he is surrounded by people who make him look stupid all the time. But um, if if Carano continues to run this clown show of a party, at some point he is going to want to say, it was like, 
Michigan needs to get his act together. You know, we need people who are going to get this. And not for any other reason than it makes him look bad and it's going to hurt him. Um, because ultimately that is the most important thing to him. Now, I want to ask, we are near the end here, but I just want to ask kind of one final question because the Michigan GOP is responsible for hosting a closed party caucus in early March to decide the majority of their delegates where they're going to go in the presidential nominating process. Let's say Nikki Haley loses either New Hampshire or South Carolina and then decides to drop. And it basically is pretty evident that it would be a Trump versus Biden matchup again. Does it really matter if the state party pulls off a sophisticated in caucus delegate deciding convention if it already appears and enough candidates drop at that point? Only to those who want to actually attend the, uh, the national convention. Yeah, I mean, they're all going to be Trump delegates one way or the other. And, you know, for the people involved who want to go to Milwaukee, it, it matters because you're either friends of, you know, now the Hookstra faction or you're friends of the Karamo faction. And, you know, you want to go to Milwaukee, you want to go. But this thing's probably going to be settled by the time it gets to our state anyway. So, I mean, I think the best case scenario, because Milwaukee is so nice in the summer, is that they're just going to hold two convention, two caucuses. And they'll like two slates and they'll all just go. They'll, they'll just they'll both they'll both show up. And, you know, we're the we're the Carano, the Carano crew and we're the Pete Hoekstra crew. And we're all here for Michigan. A good old family reunion. In That's Milwaukee. right. Uh, Matt, before we head off, any final things that you would like to share to the world? No, just happy state of the state day. Um, enjoy everyone. Best day of the year. <laughs> uh, that is Matt Resch, the president of Rush Strategies. Thank you so much for joining us on our warm up segment of the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks, everybody. Now joining us on the podcast is Macomb County Public Works Commissioner Candace Miller, a Republican who additionally served as Michigan's Secretary of State from 1995 through 2003 and was a U.S. Rep from 2003 through 2016. Uh, one of the reasons why we have Commissioner Miller on with us today is because as lawmakers in Lansing are gently sliding into what could be some policy priorities for 2024, Miller is leading local opposition against Democrats' water affordability bill package. Ultimately, this package intends to ensure low-income households, specifically those residing at or below 200% of the federal poverty line, are not spending more than 3% of their yearly income on water and sewer services. One of the ways the package intends to support struggling families and residents with their water bills is through what would be a first-of-its-kind low-income water residential affordability fund within the state treasury, which would be financed through a $2 monthly fee on retail water meters throughout the state, paid for by residents as they obtain their regular water and sewage services. Uh, first off, Commissioner Miller, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You know, water affordability, I mean, that seems like such a positive thing when you look at the surface of the intentions of this legislation. Why did you choose to go in the vocal opposition route? Uh, really, because quite frankly, a majority of the state already has a water affordability fee. So if you are a member of the Great Lakes Water Authority, 
which is over 100 communities down in Southeast Michigan, a huge percentage of the population of the state, we are already paying uh, into in our normal water and sewer bills, every person or every household is paying 0 0.05 uh, into this water affordability already. So we have quite a big pot of money that we use and we help everyone that needs to have help with their uh, afford affording their water and sewer bills, which of course, I mean, we are a compassionate society. We all recognize that there are individuals that do in households that do need help, sometimes occasionally, sometimes they need it, you know, for a very extended period of time. It's interesting because under this fee that we currently all pay into, for instance, in the case of Macomb County, we are able to keep the, the money that we generate within our county for our county residents. This new fee is going to be quite the opposite. So in our case, uh, just as an example, last year, I think we generated about $750,000, of which we have never spent all of the money that we generate. I mean, Oakland County only spends half of the money that they generate. This is called a RAP, W-R-A-P, the RAP program. And both of our counties now, and for many years, have sent all of the excess to the city of Detroit because they always need it. And, uh, and we're willing to do that. But now this new fee is going to, as you mentioned, going to be uh, $2 a month, so $24 a year, if you are a water meter customer anywhere in the state of Michigan, any county. I don't care if you're in Ionia County or Sheboygan County, Macomb County, wherever, you're all going to pay this fee soon to go to $36 a year. And it will generate in the first year probably about uh, maybe 70 to $74 million a year. And in Macomb County's case, we're probably not going to get any of that because we already have this fee. The money really uh, is uh, designed, the legislation is designed because the city of Detroit started a lifeline program, <clears throat> I think about two years ago, when they had a lot of federal funds. They already have 40,000 households on this program that they have. Uh, so they give out, you know, assist people with their water and sewer bills, or they give it their water for free. They need to have a cash cow somewhere. They need to have a revenue source to continue this program. And that's what this legislation is. And quite frankly, we're opposed. When I first came across your opposition press release to these bills, I talked to Senator Stephanie Chang, a Detroit Democrat, and she told me that it kind of comes off as a false narrative, this idea that the fund would be used majorly for the city of Detroit, uh, because Detroit has used a lot of federal money for water bill support. Uh, what is your response to that, that some might feel that you're putting out a, a false negative, negative claim against Detroit? Well, I think by her very comments, she just made my point because the city of Detroit has said that, yes, they have been using federal funds. They mostly ARPA money. But guess what? Those funds are drying up now. So they're get, they're running out of money. So that's why uh, Stephanie Chang, Senator Chang and others are trying to get more money for the city of Detroit. They want everybody else in the state to pay for this program. And uh, and quite frankly, we're just objecting to that. So I you know, I don't it's, if there's a false narrative. It's really her, I think, because she has also, I, I have talked to her and I've asked her very respectfully uh, because obviously she's a believer in what she's doing and I can appreciate that, but we have a difference of opinion on this. And I've just asked her, I said, couldn't you allow counties to opt out? I mean, because we already have our fee and we don't need this, we don't need to pay 
double, actually more than double. We're going to pay a lot more money, uh, of which we are not going to get any benefit. Is there some some way that your legislation could allow us to opt out? And basically, she said, well, we can't allow for that because there won't be enough money then. I mean, yeah, for who? For who? You know, I know that the funding mechanisms here are, you know, of this legislation, it ultimately majorly replicates the pre-existing Michigan energy assistance programs where utility consumers are charged 99 cents per month and low-income residents then receive support for paying their electricity bills. Uh, doesn't it make sense, though, if we already have this statewide program for electricity that we would have a similar program for water? I don't think so. First of all, that... Uh... That, of course, that's that's half of the fee that uh, they're talking about to begin with. But then secondly, that fee is also, uh, it allows for utilities to opt out. That's why I asked her, why don't you let us opt out? Well, no. I mean, if they really want to model it opt after that, they should allow for the opt out uh, portion of it, uh, I, I think, as well. So, no, there really isn't. I don't think there are apples to apples on that. And also, here's another thing. When you think about water fees... The way that this legislation is, since they've modeled it after this utility fee, it's, it, it's not even based on consumption, okay? So if you are a, a senior citizen living in East Point, a single person in a household, you are going to pay $24 a month. If you are the next corner, which is a, your local Meyer store or Walmart or a laundromat, they are paying $24 a month. So it has nothing to do with the amount of the service that you are utilizing, in this case, the commodity of water and sewer. And that is so grossly unfair, I can't believe they're even suggesting it. But on the other hand, I can't believe they're suggesting this bill. How uh, Do you think that this is something that is going to move quickly in 2024? Is this something that you can imagine the legislature voting on? Well, uh, yeah, I think they are trying to move it as quickly as they can. Of course, right now, they're a bit stymied because of the two vacancies that are in the House. So. Um, because of that, when I heard about, I just heard, really heard about this, became aware of it uh, at the end of uh, this this last year, maybe like in November or something. And I, first, I thought it was a joke because I I know how upset people are with their water and sewer bills already, and now they're gonna we're, the state legislature is gonna vote to increase them. And you know, so I started at least sending out notices, notification to the communities in Macomb County. And uh, mentioned about this, and did they were they aware of it? Of course, nobody knew anything about it. Uh, Senator Chang has said, "Well, we have had uh, numerous meetings with all the affected stakeholders." Well, I don't know who the affected stakeholders are. If you never talk to any municipalities, people that actually represent the people, <laughs> nor did they talk to the people. They might have talked to utilities or something. Uh, but anyway, uh, because of that, I started no notifying uh, those municipalities in Macomb County. And to date, really in about the last month here, because of the holidays in the middle, uh, we have, I think, 15 to 17 communities already who have passed resolutions opposing this. Unanimous resolutions, by the way. There's not been one single vote. Yes, it's all been, or excuse me, all yes votes, unanimous votes to oppose this legislation. And it's interesting that communities Shelby Township, which is maybe a little wealthier community, right? Macomb Township, a little bit wealthier community. The city of Mount Clemens, that is not a wealthy community. Uh, New Haven, not a wealthy community. So it doesn't matter where you are in Macomb County, what the demographics are, or what your partisanship is, quite frankly. I mean, Democrats, Republicans, on city councils, township boards, they are all voting unanimously 
And uh, I think that is going to have some impact. It certainly should if we really do live in a representative democracy here. Uh, if you're a state rep or a state senator uh, that has Macomb County, you need to be thinking about this seriously before you support uh, this legislation. And uh, hopefully they will. I mean, this is our process. We're going to make our voices heard. And that's that's really all we're doing here. We have a huge difference of opinion. Uh, quick question. I mean, have you talked to the majority of the Macomb County lawmakers in Lansing about this? Yes. And are are there a few that you think would say yes? Or do you think the majority are ready to say no? I think the majority will say no. Uh, there's a couple who's... Uh, uh, it's unknown to me how they're going to vote. I do know uh, some that I think were probably in favor of it previously. Uh, as one of them told me, we are getting pummeled with phone calls. Uh, so that, and that's not coming from me. These are citizens that are calling their lawmaker, which is our process, right, to make their voices heard. So it's uh, it will be an interesting thing to see uh, how this is. But it is too bad that it's really such a partisan issue in Lansing that it only has support of Democratic lawmakers. There are no Republican lawmakers that are in support of this. And yet here in Macomb County, you can, as I just explained here, you see that it is truly a bipartisan uh, issue and that the opposition is unanimous from a bipartisan standpoint. Now, I kind of want to move over onto a different side of the policy conversation. Obviously, last year you saw a lot of environmental policy get done, especially when it deals with the Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy. Uh, for example, you saw the repeal of the No Stricter Than Federal. Uh, now they are looking at legislation to give EGLE more rulemaking authority over water quality and wastewater disposal regulations. Could you tell me, do you feel that Eagle has too much power or not enough power when it comes to the type of water quality work that you yourself do? Well, I think really the way I would respond to that is more that I think uh, Eagle, uh, I know everybody calls it Eagle, but it has no A. So I always call it Eagle. <laughs> Eagle uh, has um, quite a bit of regulatory authority already. And uh, I would like to see them utilize the authorities that they have better, I guess. And, uh, you know, they do a lot of things well. Uh, they do a lot of things not so well, like like any agency, I suppose. And I'm not picking on anybody individually, uh, but I've had a lot of dealings with Eggle and uh, many of their folks. And I'll, I'll just give you some examples here that we have found. For instance, and really the principal reason I even ran for this office was to stop discharging combined sewer overflows into Lake St. Clair, into the Clinton River and Lake St. Clair in Macomb County. I'm a huge advocate for the Great Lakes. As we all are, we are the Great Lakes state, right? Well, we were discharging all of these sewer overflows when I was a child. Now I'm almost 70 years old and we're still doing this. It's ridiculous. And yet, a county like Macomb, I have two big pump stations, we are permitted by Eggle to allow us to do this. So all the counties that discharge like this are allowed to, to do it. In fact, in the city of uh, right, in the city of Detroit and along Wayne County, for instance, I'll give you an example there, they have uh, 60 outfalls, so huge, uh, large pipes that go into the Detroit River. <clears throat> they discharge, I don't even know. I mean, the numbers are off the charts. And, and Eggle has given them an economic waiver from the Clean Water Act. Okay, so they just allow them to violate the Clean Water Act. I understand the economics of that, but I'm telling you, you need to have the political will to buck up. They spend the money 
to stop doing this. And in Macomb County, we are doing that. And as I told you, since I've run for this job, I'm very focused on that. I'll give you a couple of quick examples here. We are currently, even though we're permitted by Eggle, by the state, to discharge after a heavy rain event into the Lake St. Clair, I don't want to keep doing that. So I don't care what the state says. They should, that's a piece of regulation that they should, they should not permit us to do that, in my opinion, but they do. But we are um, changing the way we do business. I have a number of projects I uh, where we are uh, going to be able to reduce, we've already reduced our combined sewer overflows about 30%. Uh, by the end of this year, we will have reduced our CSOs because of a couple of projects that are going to be coming online, of which we are spending tens of millions of dollars. ARPA dollars, by the way, because all of that federal money was supposed to be spent on things that are transformational, that transform something. So we're spending on infrastructure that is going to help us reduce and hopefully eliminate combined sewer overflows from Macomb County. And that is something that will benefit the next generation. I know, I know that you can only really speak for yourself, but when you look at kind of some of your other neighbors in Southeast Michigan or across the state, do you think that there are some places that have unwisely spent this federal money? Well, I don't want to, uh, I really don't want to uh, pick on anybody or how they spend it. It's up to them, right? Of course, they have to have, they have to meet the confines of the federal guidelines. Now, I can only speak to Macomb County. When we got, uh, Macomb got their ARPA funds, which was almost $170 million, I think. And what we decided to do, and I say we because the county executive, our county board of commissioners, you know, myself, uh, some of our other county wides, like our sheriff, et cetera, we sat down and said, this is how much money we have. We don't want to spend this on programs that are fleeting, okay, that you're going to spend it this year and then the next year, you don't have that money anymore, which is where probably some people are running. <laughs> That's why this meter legislation is happening, okay, I think. But anyway, what we said is we were going to spend uh, most of that money on a, on a new uh, intake for our county jail, which is something our county has identified for quite a few years of something we needed to do. And then $40 million of that money came to my department, which we are spending on these programs that I've told you about that are reducing combined sewer overflows out into the lake. And that's it. Two things. That's all. We weren't chasing every shiny ball. We weren't saying that, uh, oh, yeah, you know, these people, uh, this group over here and these folks think we should spend it here and spend it here. And we all sat in a room. We discussed it. This is what we decided. And no one ever deviated from that. And uh, and then when it finally came up for a vote at the County Board of Commissioners, uh, I think it was uh, almost unanimous. There might have been one uh, no vote uh, for the 40 million for my department was unanimous. So mm -hmm. it was really pretty cohesive. And again, these are trans transformational kinds of projects. Uh, if you are a community that spends your ARPA money, for instance, on something that you put it in the baseline as uh, operations like wages or salaries or what have you, the next year, here's your budget again. Now you've got all these wages and salaries, but you don't have the uh, federal funds anymore. So, you know, it's, and, and beside that, the federal government had a, a specific uh, uh, criteria of how to spend these funds. And, I, and as a member of Congress, formerly, I certainly know that at some point, the federal government, besides monitoring these funds, they're going to come in and audit them. So you got to make sure you're spending them properly. And uh, I'm sure everybody is. Everybody knows the rules. I'm just saying that's what we did here. 
that now I know that we just had a cold spell in Michigan, but I want to get a little bit excited for summer and warmer days ahead and talk about beaches. But uh, with that being said, uh, the issue of E. coli and fecal indicator bacteria in Michigan beaches, especially those on Lake St. Clair, I know uh, there's a report about 2022, the Memorial Park Beach in St. Clair Shores uh, was potentially unsafe for swimmers on 35 of its 48 testing days. How do you fix this issue? Why does it seem every summer that there's this huge issue of E. coli, fecal indicator bacteria, and you just can't hop into the water? Well, I think uh, it's not the only reason, but it's a principal contributor because most of these things, these beach closures always happen after a heavy rain event. Now, the beaches that you're uh, talking about, Metropolitan Beach, Memorial Park, etc., those are impacted by whatever is coming out of the Clinton River or the Clinton River Spillway. So that's they are impacted by that. We do not, we Macomb County do not have any wastewater plants that overflow into those bodies of water. All of that overflow comes from Oakland County. Oakland County, just saying, that's where it comes from. They are permitted by Eggle to discharge and they do. They discharge right onto Macomb County goes into the Clinton River, goes out into Lake St. Clair. And those, and of course, it all hugs the shoreline just because of the way the water flows through the lake. It's pushed over to the shoreline, and that's where the beaches are. And that is one of the reasons. It's not the only reason, but it's it's one of the reasons. That's why we are trying to do everything we can with our to reduce our combined sewer overflows. But my my wastewater plants are at the uh, really are as we discharge, it almost immediately goes to Wayne County because mine are at the southern end of the county. And I was just at a meeting with a bunch of uh, folks from Wayne County. And I said, you know, we're spending all this money because I don't want to keep discharging on you. We're, everybody's downstream of somebody. It's just so <laughs> we live on this planet together here, right? We're all down downstream of somebody. And we have to think more regionally, I think, about not doing that to our neighbors. I mean, is there any kind of mitigation efforts that you have in mind that could make the problem less intense than what it currently is and what it was last summer? Uh, well, we can't do anything about Oakland County because they will. They they say that uh, since they're permitted, it's okay what they're doing. And uh, but there are other things that we've tried to do, like with Metro Beach, Metropolitan Beach specifically. Uh, you know, they have they have a huge Canadian uh, goose population over there. And uh, we since I I've been in this office here, we have worked very closely with the Huron Clinton Metropolitan Authority. Uh, they've done a remarkable job over there now. And actually, there's many, many less beach closures now because of a number of things that they have done. For instance, this is how sometimes it doesn't cost hundreds of millions of dollars to fix something. They hired a, a group called Goosebusters, and they run border collies out on the beach all the time. And they get rid of the uh, the geese that way, right? I mean, you know, the geese are very messy, right? Uh, they've done uh, all kinds of different things over there. It's really been interesting to watch them. But, um, you know, it really, the beach closures are very dependent on the amount of precipitation that we get. And it's after the heavy rain events uh, that these kinds of things happen at the beach closures. Uh, last year, I noticed that uh, Belle Isle, was uh, their beach was closed. You know, and I mean, I'm just telling you, we are upstream from Belle Isle. Of course, they're getting it from the Gross Points and, and Detroit and other, you know, we're, everybody's downstream of somebody mm -hmm. here. And uh, the reason that Western uh, Lake Erie cannot help itself is because of how much 
effluent, uh, sanitary sewage and combined sewer overflows are coming out of Michigan, uh, coming down the Detroit River into Western Wayne County, uh, you know, Western Lake Erie. I'm familiar with that because I sit on the um, Great Lakes Commission, the eight Great Lakes states and two Canadian provinces. And we were just in Maumee Bay, Ohio. And we're, you know, the people in Ohio are going, what are you doing in Michigan? Aren't you the Great Lakes state? Of course, you got to scratch your head and say, yeah, I thought we were. So now we are near the very end. I apologize for going a little over time. Two political questions for you. And I'm assuming that you would rather talk about E. coli than politics. <laughs> Am I accurate? Well, there's some analogy to be drawn between the two, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. Obviously, there is a U.S. Senate race going on in Michigan this year, a open seat and a pretty big Republican primary. Do you have a personal favorite? Uh, yes, my personal favorite is uh, Mike Rogers, a former member of Congress that I had the great uh, privilege of serving with for a number of terms uh, in the House. Uh, he was on the, uh, he's actually was the chairman of the House uh, Intelligence Committee. Uh, he's just, uh, you know, he's got a background as an FBI agent, you know, was in the uh, service in the military, in the Army. He has just a very uh, interesting and important skill set, I think for the challenges that are facing our nation right now. And I often say that the first and foremost responsibility of the federal government is to provide for the national defense, national security, homeland security. And uh, if Mike Rogers is elected, if the people of Michigan send Mike Rogers to Washington, he's not gonna start a Senate career at the kids table. He understands these issues and will be immediately seen as a national uh, expert uh, on so many of these issues that are important right now when the world is literally on fire. Presidential primary, do you have a personal favorite there? Uh, well, I think uh, President Trump is uh, most likely to be the Republican nominee. And uh, I, I think it, uh, looking at all of these poll numbers, uh, I think I, this is what I think. I think if it's uh, Trump against Biden, I think Trump wins. That's what I think right now, if that if that's the way that it lines up. But um, it'll be interesting. Of course, Michigan is about to have their primary here shortly, presidential primary. Uh, and I think uh, President Trump is uh, well ahead. Now, is that an endorsement or is that just an observation? Uh, that's an observation. You know, I mean, that's that's my observation on it. Uh, I, I sort of like Nikki Haley, but I don't think she's going to be uh, the successful uh, nominee. I do think President Trump will be the nominee. And, you know, I voted for President Trump twice. So um, we'll see how, who, who, what, but it, it seems, I mean, I can't, uh, at this point, it seems uh, more than highly likely that Trump will be our nominee. And then uh, we'll see, uh, see what happens in November. Candace Miller, the Macomb County Public Works Commissioner. Thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I am really excited about this segment of the MERS Monday podcast because not too long ago, I came across the social media presence and blog of Kristen Furman. 
Kristen Furman, a Detroit resident who's documenting something that we often view as unimaginable in a state where cars are literally our original economic bread and butter. She is living, exploring, and documenting Southeast Michigan completely without a car, uh, with a car being something that she hasn't owned since um, in a decade, right? You've been a decade carless. Yes. Well, that is amazing. Thank you so much, Kristen, for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. And just so our listeners can get familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came across this carless journey starting a decade ago? Yes. So I'm originally from Traverse City. And so I grew up in a very, you know, car necessary place even though we have had a lovely downtown and I really knew the the joys of walking and exploring, you know, your own community and surroundings from a young age. And um, I graduated college, CMU, um, in 20 or 2007 and lived in Metro Detroit actually for a year. So I was living um, and working, you know, driving a car, doing that hour long commute every day. And after that year, I decided, you know, I would love to live in a city and be able to take the bus to work, walk around. So I moved to San Francisco and I did that in 2008 and it was a joy. And I actually did have a car out there when I was in the city and ended up selling it, not needing it and living car free out there. But, you know, moved back to Michigan, ended up, you know, buying a car, selling it in 2014. And I moved to New York uh, to work in the fashion industry. So I was out there, you know, loving the subway, taking the bus, being able to walk to TJ Maxx in my neighborhood, like just having all the, you know, everyday, you know, things that you need right there. Uh, So I really, really um, enjoyed my time in New York, but then wanted a slower pace. And so I moved to Boston, again, another place, very walkable. You can pretty much walk the whole city, you know, in a couple of hours in at least city proper. So I lived out um, in the suburbs of Boston, but trains, buses were really good. And so I was able to you know, commute into the city and uh, explore a lot. And I've actually been documenting my walking this whole time, <laughs> um, you know, whether I was in Boston, whether I was in San Francisco, um, I love photography. So, you know, to be able to look back at how the cities have changed over the years, how, you know, the U- United States has changed over the years and um, COVID really changed everything. And I spent the pandemic in Traverse City, actually. I I left Boston in 2019, shortly before the pandemic, unaware of what was about to happen. And I didn't know I would stay in Michigan even at the time. But um, I did move back to Traverse City without a car. And I utilized the beta bus system, which was great. My apartment complex was right on a bus stop. So I was able to get downtown. I was able to get to the mall if I needed to, um, even though not much is there. Uh, Downtown really is where it's at, like the walkable, friendly, uh, small business uh, community. So uh, I I could even walk downtown from where I lived. That must have been so intimidating, the idea of moving back to Traverse City carless after being in these being in these municipalities that kind of thrive off of their walkable reputations what was that like to make that transition back to your hometown roots with you being a new different pro walkable person 
the lot of people like gave me funny looks, you got a lot of judgment. And I would just do it anyway. You know, whether it was a two mile walk in the snow, I, I just really just did, you know, I didn't have a dog or an excuse to go out in that weather. But you know, I just started to just do the same things that I did normally, um, when I was in Boston. And even when I did live, you know, in New York and in Boston, I bundle up, go to Central Park, you know, walk across the bridge, like in the snow, I really enjoyed just getting outside and um, in the community aspect of it too, running into people, having a barista that you get to know at your neighborhood cafe. Those were the moments that I really missed. And just the everyday joys of being out and about, I missed in a car. I want to talk about your journey then to Detroit. I personally have friends who live in Detroit, who live in the Corktown area. Uh, one of my personal friends was going to have an old roommate he had in Chicago come and live with him in Detroit, but she ended up saying no because she was so used to not having a car in Chicago. She didn't know what that transition would have been like. And I've, I've made this comment before, and it's probably not a funny joke, and I shouldn't make it, but... It was almost like it kind of seems that in the Metro Detroit, Southeast Michigan area, people would rather drive a vehicle that is uninsured with a missing fragment of glass in their windshield than utilize public transit. Yeah, that's too bad. I, I really I don't know. I mean, do you make that do you make that um observation sometimes being someone who's kind of walking the talk and some people are like, I could never yeah, I mean, most, I'd say most of the people that live here can't imagine not having a car. They can't, but I'm I'm in this cool transit community here of people that are either urban planners or environmentalists, and, and they're doing what I'm doing. So at least we have each other. <laughs> That's nice. But yeah, uh, I am seeing more people utilize the queue line to go to sporting events, which is awesome. You know, so that fights traffic, especially a weekend like this weekend with the Lions. The podcast is <laughs> will be after, but you know, with with all the sports, with all the entertainment in the city, public transit and utilizing it just adds so much. Um, you know, ease. Uh, you know, not only to the parking and frustration and congestion of traffic, but, you know, less carbon emissions out into the world too. Um, they can park, you know, up in New Center. Or in my neighborhood, you know, there's a lot of parking in Midtown, you know, where people could take the bus or the queue line. So what gravitated you toward Detroit? All of the beautiful work that's being done down here with, um, with placemaking, with the parks, with um, utilizing old buildings and making new things out of old and, and a lot of the preservation and the history. I thought it was a really neat, special thing to be a part of, especially right now. Now, in the beginning of 2023, you posted that you spent um, monthly average in 2023 was $18, $18 a month on transportation. You spent $160 last year on Lyft and $60 on the bus. But I do have a question is, so are you limited to only Detroit and then the suburban communities? Or do you ever have the opportunity to go beyond the Southeast Michigan region? I could, yeah, I could absolutely take trains other places outside of Southeast Michigan. And one thing that I would really love to do is take the Zephyr train from uh, Chicago to San Francisco. 
Right now, though, do you just majorly document life within Metro Detroit and Detroit? Or have you ever tried to maybe make a carless commute to Lansing or a carless commute? I know that you say that you go to Ann Arbor and you utilize the bus that way. Yeah, in the year I've lived here, I've only gone to Ann Arbor. But I was, you know, limited to like having a job and I didn't have a lot of time, money, you know, so I, I would, I would love to take a commute to Lansing though. Right now you see a lot of elected officials talk about wanting more walkable infrastructure, more pedestrian infrastructure, more transit opportunities. Uh, I Could you just kind of tell us a bit about your most intense obstacles? Yeah, it's difficult because I have no way at public transit to easily get back to my hometown for Christmas. Or if I needed to go, you know, to a meeting in Grand Rapids or, you know, just get to Lansing, there's very limited options for public transit as someone who is car free and as someone who doesn't want to drive a car. And, you know, you know, we all have our values with how we spend our money and our time and, you know, what we put out into the environment. And so having other options for travel in Michigan, I think is is vital, vital to keep, retain good talent, people that want to raise families here. Even housing right now in Detroit is really, really increasing. And it's not making sense considering we don't have all of the transit and all of the luxuries a lot of other cities do. I mean, even in Detroit alone, after living in cities like Boston and San Francisco and New York, I mean, what is something that was a pedestrian infrastructure item that did really well in those communities that you wish that Detroit had? Well, the subway, you know, having a train to be able to get out to the other suburbs and the other communities would be just wonderful. And Detroit did used to have it, but we got rid of it, unfortunately. But it's just really, really sad to see how the automotive industry really monopolize transportation in the United States and Michigan. We can't have both. It doesn't have to be this or that. And it's very unfortunate that there's been, you know, so much money put into, you know, roads, which is important, but there's a lot of other things, you know, in the community paying bus drivers fairly. You know, they did get an increase recently here in the city of Detroit, but it wasn't much. And, you know, we'd have improved transit times. We'd have happier drivers. We'd have more drivers if, you know, we were competitive with the other large cities. What about pedestrian safety? Have you ever noticed something like the way that this pedestrian infrastructure is designed, it could be a lot safer? Definitely. It definitely could. They're, they're improving things. We have a new bridge, like a pedestrian bridge on 2nd Avenue. And so it's actually right at the base of the United Recording Company, um, the United Recording Systems, which was a historic, beautiful piece of musical history here in Detroit, you know, and I, I hear that MDOT bought it and wants to tear it down. And, you know, you know, the seeing like expansion of roads and things like that opposed to like preserving history has been really painful. But I think improving areas like preserving the history, not demolishing things, you know, not widening the roads, continuing to make, you know, nice, safe walkways with like plants and grass, like separating, you know, the cars, you know, from the bikes, from, you know, the pedestrian walkways. You know, I am seeing improvements, but you know, I do walk over a lot of freeways <laughs> in the city and, you know, trying to give it some like life, some like element, even art, you know, art has been really nice here in Detroit, you know, makes it feel 
a little less industrial in spots and more more walkable. I always am an advocate for plants and art. <laughs> when you think about the battle between man and vehicle, human and vehicle, uh, what is the, and this could be in any city you've ever lived in, but what was your, what is your scariest memory when you were walking and you had a dangerous encounter, if you don't mind me sharing, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I was walking, um, I was in Midtown, New York, so busy area. I had the walking sign and a cab just hit me, just not like, it, it didn't knock over, but it, he hit me and I screamed really loud and my New York girl came out. But, and that happens here in Detroit. Yesterday I had a car roll through, you know, I had the walking sign. He wasn't paying attention. He was just, he just kept going. And I yelled, I yelled just that impulse. A lot of people don't pay attention on the road and that's what's scary. You know, they're on their phones. They're, you know, doing something else and um, they're machines, you know, it's just people driving these machines full of gas and plastic and like, it's very dangerous. Just, I think, you know, society takes it for granted, like the, the power of these things that you just, you know, hop into and, you know, in any condition and, 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 you know, having, you know, tighter restrictions on some things too, with driving tests. And I don't know, it's, it's a little bit difficult. Have you ever seen someone get hurt? You know, I've seen bikers get hit. I've seen um, a lot of accidents. You know, I'm just right here walking. I'll see, you know, you know, two cars, you know, smash into each other because, you know, they weren't paying attention. I know that there has been legislation circulating around that would ultimately intensify and create these distinct penalties for if you hit a pedestrian. Uh, do you think something like that, if you were to kind of ramp up the fines and make specific fines for harming pedestrians, do you think that could help the issues that you occasionally see? I would certainly hope so, you know, to think, you know, there's so many investigations for plane crashes and, you know, other when other people get hurt or, or killed, you know, but cars like they just treat it like, oh, that that's just another thing. And that is really scary. That's a that's a society problem. That's society should be ashamed of that, you know, and the government. What is um what are kind of the the common maybe not necessarily criticisms but when you tell people that you're carless uh what are some of the reactions that they'll have and maybe some jokes they might make A lot of people ask what I do in the winter that's a huge one like what do you do in the winter Oh, I was going to ask too, because we just had our first real cold spell here in Michigan where we had some negative temperatures. What was that past week like for you? I wore a lot of layers. So yeah, I, it doesn't change it. Like I still get on the bus. I still go for a walk. I still go to the store, still go to work. I, I grew up in Traverse City, right? And, you know, survived a lot of New York winters, a lot of Boston winters, and the city doesn't stop, you know, so just because I don't have a car here, you know, other cities do it too, you know, Chicago too, but Detroit can be t difficult with waiting for that bus that doesn't show up or, you know, that can really affect lives and really, you know, mess up families. You know, I'm fortunate because I don't have children. I don't have to drive someone to class. And so my thought is since I don't have the need for a car, why would I? be just one more person on the road when I would rather be on, you know, on my feet. What would you say is your favorite memory while on a journey on a little on a little pedestrian adventure? 
gosh, a really cool one that I had. It was shortly after I moved here and I was trying to get down to the Ambassador Bridge because I was interested in checking out Riverside Park. A friend of mine from junior high designs, uh, you know, cityscapes and parks in, the, in Detroit. So I wanted to see the progress and I got kind of lost and I ended up talking to this guy, this a guy about my age was interviewing someone on the street by this big wall of art, like street art. It was on Verner in Southwest Michigan. And the man he was interviewing was named um, Lee. And he actually had the first black owned record store in Detroit called Lee's Monroe Street Music back in the fifties. And so he knew everyone from Motown and had all these stories. And it was just like one of those funny moments where I learned a piece of Detroit history just by walking on the street, going the wrong way. And um, it was like, just like little serendipitous moments like that, I think are really, really cool. Now, do you have, when you think about the friends and the relationships you built in the other cities you've lived in, San Francisco, New York, and you talk to them about the possibility of moving to Michigan, making the Michigan switch, do they kind of view it as a impossibility? I don't really necessarily think so. They, you know, without knowledge of the landscape, it's hard harder for them to really understand what it's like in Detroit or Traverse City. But, you know, a lot of them are from car dominant places too. So a lot of people, a lot of friends of mine from New York have started families. They've moved to the suburbs too. They need cars now. You know, so I think it depends on the people. But I think I'd say in general, though, most people think it's ridiculous that I live in Michigan without a car. <laughs> I do. I mean, when you but when you talk to people from, you know, people that you know, who are out of state currently, what do you think is some of the top reasons why people would not want to come to Michigan and would not want to put down roots here? Well, the weather, that is a big one, the, the cold. That is the one I hear the most even though it is beautiful and there's so much to offer with winter activities in Detroit and Michigan, you know, especially up North and with skiing. And I saw a video of people ice skating in Belle Isle last night and it looked like the most enchanting thing ever. <laughs> oh yeah. It's cold enough. So yeah, that would be so fun. Oh, I would like to just go watch. Yeah. I think winter is a magical time. And I think that's one of the, our strengths too. And, um, but transit is a big, big one. You know, transportation, you know, friendly communities, walkable communities. Michigan does have a fair share of nice, you know, small little downtown areas, villages. But, um, you know, the connectivity to other towns could definitely um, needs to be created. I, I also kind of want to talk about the question of safety and how you how you kind of answer those questions, especially as as a woman who's living without a car. Mm hmm. Well, uh, just always depends on the situation, staying alert. I carry, you know, some uh, protective item, whether it's, you know, mace or I've got a birdie whistle. Um, so uh, things like that, that can potentially keep me safe, you know, if there was a strange situation. But using my discretion is probably one of the most important things. I used to work downtown early in the morning. And so sometimes when I would leave, it would be dark and I wouldn't feel safe to uh to go to walk you know sometimes I'd see activity outside of a business down the street and I think okay my gut tells me I want to take a lift today so 
that's one of those instances where, you know, I'll spend $8 to go to work, but it still makes, makes more sense to me than the car payment and the insurance and the gas when I, you know, primarily get around in an area that I can navigate by foot or bike. As we kind of approach the end of our interview, uh, what are some things that you really just want to highlight about your journey now that you have the mic? Sure. So since being car free, I would say my mental health has improved just tenfold. Um, And I think my relationships with people have improved. It's just my overall um, awareness for the world around me. I've really gotten to enjoy those little moments you know, more so I've slowed down. And I think, you know, it comes with age too. you know, getting older, but, you know, I've been just really a lot more active, healthy. I've gotten into biking and, you know, I've just really enjoyed, you know, life, you know, the simple things in life since being car free. Kristen Furman, thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you, Samantha. And that's going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you to our guest today, President Matt Resch of issue management firm Resch Strategies, Macomb County Public Works Commissioner Candace Miller, and Detroit resident and Carlos Lifestyle documenter Kristen Furman. As always, I would like to give a tremendous thanks to MERS editor Kyle Malin and our publisher, the boss, John Rurank. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio and Okemos. Thanks to him for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber. It's all about counting.